here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello podcast listeners, it's Carly here. I want to talk to you about Lefty Obey's writing podcast. Lefty is a writer just like you. She's working on her debut that she'll soon query in the hopes of getting an agent and a book deal. In her podcast, she shares her writing journey as well as tips, tricks, and mindset shifts that are helping her along the way, all to help and inspire you to pursue your own writing dreams. If that sounds interesting to you, go check out Lefty Obey's writing podcast. That's Lefty Obey's writing podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Before we dive into today's segment, we just wanted to give a shout out to all the amazing sponsors who sponsored such 
terrific literary prizes for our The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat. Some of these prizes are going to be life-changing for the authors who've won them. And so I just wanted to give a shout out. So besides the three prizes, the manuscript evaluations that Carly, Cece and myself donated, there was a 50-page manuscript evaluation by book coach Lydia Hilger. Her website is LydiaHilger.com. That is L-I-D-I-J-A-H-I-L-J-E.com. Go check out her website. She's been on the podcast before and she gave an amazing, amazing interview. We have a 30-page manuscript evaluation by literary agent Emmy Nordstrom Higdon of Westwood Creative Artists. Those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while know that Emmy is a phenomenal guest agent who evaluates those submissions. Thank you so much, Emmy. We have a 50-page manuscript evaluation done by Laurie Grassi, who was recently an editor with Simon & Schuster, who's now working as a freelance editor. We have an hour brainstorming session with award-winning author Susie Orman-Schnoll. Her website is susieschnoll.com. That is Susie, S-U-S-I-E, S-C-H-N-A-L-L.com. Check out our books. We also had a 50-page manuscript evaluation or a one-hour brainstorming session with freelance editor Lisa Rivers. And if you're not following Lisa's Instagram account, why the hell not? It is absolutely hilarious and informative. That's lisarivers.editorial on Instagram. We also had a one-hour AWA, which is the Amherst Writers and Authors Workshop done by Susie Wheelahan. Go to susiewheelahan.ca for more information about that. For those of you who've got writing groups, this is a phenomenal workshop to do together. Instead of critiquing each other's work, this is a great way to write and build each other up. Then we have a submission package critique and a spot on the DIY developmental edit course offered by Burgeon Design and Editorial. Their website is burgeondesignandeditorial.com. Then a developmental edit of your first 30 pages and a 30-minute coaching call done by Katie from Craft Better Books. And their website is craftbetterbooks.com. And then finally, two one-hour strategy sessions and entrance into the three ways to get your publisher to notice you workshop offered by Stephanie Moon, who's a book marketing strategist and consultant. And her website is stephmoonco.com. So a big thank you to all of those sponsors for sponsoring prizes. I know that they're going to make huge differences in the writing lives of the authors who won them. Alrighty, now let's dive in. Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, thank you for the valued insights and resources your show offers to emerging writers of all genres. Since listening to your podcast, I have revisited my query letter and opening pages based on the helpful advice you've shared. Dear Judy is an 81,000-word literary novel about James Morris, a 29-year-old architect, grappling with childhood trauma and the magnetic drag performer who helps him find a path towards healing. In the spirit of Kate Elizabeth Russell's My Dark Vanessa, the story unfolds through chapters alternating between 2015 New York City and the Rhode Island seaside village of James's childhood. James is a pensive and introverted narrator who recounts a complex web of interconnected characters with overlapping stories. Imagine Ocean Bong's voice with a Leanne Moriarty plot. For years, James has kept silent about a sexual encounter he witnessed in middle school between his 40-year-old music teacher, Ray Bradburn, and his classmate, David Lopez. 
James's silence was born of the fear of not being believed and the shame around his own intimate relationship with Mr. Bradburn. Guilt surfaces later when James realizes that Ray is free and clear to commit the same atrocities again, all because he never spoke up. Well into adulthood, James is emotionally stunted and unable to connect or trust other men. His hesitance extends to his career. A talented architect, James cannot find fulfillment in his chosen vocation. Everything changes when James stumbles into a drag show and meets Judy Deere, a New York City premier Judy Garland impersonator. Judy and James have electric chemistry. Their new friendship sparks memories of his relationship with Ray and the love they once shared for the real Hollywood legend. All the while, James holds on to the inside information about a threat to Judy's nightlife existence. His client, Russian steel magnate Alexander Petrovich, has plans to acquire the bar where Judy performs and combine it with two adjacent townhouses into a gaudy Manhattan mega mansion. Since James is conditioned to respond to any conflict with shame and secrecy, he conceals this information from Judy. When James discovered Judy Deere's true identity, his world begins to further unravel, and he is forced to confront secrets from his past and present. No longer a silent observer, James must face the painful memories that have haunted him for nearly 20 years, this time not alone, but with an ally. Judy Deere is my first novel. Practicing architect, my writing has been featured in trade publications in the design and construction industry, including Faith and Form, the Interfaith Journal on Religion, Art, and Architecture. I have developed this manuscript in several workshop courses in New York City with continued editorial input from former instructors and writing colleagues. Judy Deere examines the nuances and complicated emotions surrounding trauma while offering a unique perspective on the role artistic expression can play in the process of recovery. I wholeheartedly believe this story has the potential to help anyone who has struggled with emotions of ambiguity, guilt, and shame. Mixed in with the books as more serious themes are moments of laughter, joy, and show-stopping performances. Thank you for your time and continued dedication to the craft. Sincerely, Robbie. Awesome, Carly. Wow, that sounds really intriguing, a bit lengthy in terms of a query letter, but certainly very intriguing. What was your take on it? All right. So, Judy Deer, this is a really, really lovely kind of overall concept. I think there's just so much heart here, the balance of the kind of like theatrical elements with obviously the kind of the traumatic plot here that we're working through. So from a query letter perspective, I think ultimately we're just we're starting off a little bit vague about the actual hook here. So I know it's literary fiction, so we don't need this kind of like burn it all down kind of hook, but we still kind of know what's at stake here, right? So and I think we kind of get to it at the end, we understand what's at stake is that his friend's livelihood, you know, the place where they perform and make money, right, is going to be kind of torn down, right? So I think in the end, we actually do understand the stakes. But at the beginning, it says, grappling with childhood trauma and the magnetic drag performer who helps him find a path towards healing. And the towards healing bit is such a passive stake, right? Such a passive goal, where I think I would really like to know a bit more at the top about again, what's at stake for this friendship. And I think that that's really what I would like to know a little bit more at the top. But I think the comp is, is really strong, very accurate here. Comparing yourself to Ocean Vong, like that's a that's that's a comparison. <laughs> um, I don't know how many awards um, Ocean has won. I think National Book Award is one of them, right? So you're, you're telling us that you take yourself to be a very serious literary writer. And obviously, we, we hope that is true. But yeah, that's a big one. 
overall, it's a very intense query letter, but it's also quite long as Bianca was getting, right? So the things I think we could cut, I made a note here of what I think we can cut. The part, well into adulthood, James is emotionally stunted and unable to connect or trust other men. His hesitance extends towards his career. A talented architect, James cannot find fulfillment in his chosen vocation. That's two full lines that really could have been summarized in a couple words. That's an example of something I think we should cut. The next part I think we should condense is we really need to shorten this last body paragraph about the Russian steel magnet. I don't think it's important to know his name. I think you could just say like a work conflict leads towards this, that, and the other, right? So I think we're just too many details. It reads very much like a synopsis, this part, when we really just need to understand this is what's at stake, right? And for a literary novel to have something at stake, that's great, right? So I'm happy that we have something at stake here. So really just trying to condense this and focus on what's at stake is important. I would also cut the pretty much the last paragraph. So the Judy Deer examines the nuances and complicated emotions surrounding trauma paragraph. I, you know, it's just one of those things where you don't need to tell me. I totally got that from from the, the query letter itself. I think you did a great job expressing that. And when I read the pages, I will get that. So that's just an example of absolutely don't need that paragraph whatsoever. Not that it's badly written. It's just well, we don't need it, right? I think your, your writing is going to do the work here. So I think our goal really is just to condense, condense, condense and get to what's at stake earlier. Great, Carly. Thank you. All right. Will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages and then your take on them? All right. So we start with our timestamp, New York City, 2015. We have a little kind of, I wouldn't call it a prologue, but kind of just like an offset paragraph about kind of setting us up for the world of meeting Judy Deer, talking about the importance of Judy Garland in our character's life and just that importance. Then we jump to talking about work. So we're talking about AutoCAD and kind of, you know, we're in the architectural firm, learning a little bit about his work day. He glances at the screen. It's two o'clock. He decides he's going to take his lunch break and pop onto his personal kind of email and computer where he starts to get into a dating app. And we know that it is for guys. So a guy to guy website, and he's interacting with another guy. They have a pun about Liza Minnelli. And they're kind of like just joking about that in their little banter on their on their app. And then we get into a work scenario where he is being called into a meeting and we kind of get into some architecture jargon and that sort of thing. And we get into some references about how architecture is like music and art and we're getting into our intersectionality of art forms between architecture, art, and music. Awesome, Carly. Okay, what was your take on those pages? All right, so I think I didn't mind this kind of offset opening paragraph where we're kind of like learning about how important Judy Garland is to our character. What I would work on is rhetorical questions. They're really creeping up a lot, not only in this paragraph, but kind of throughout these pages. I made a note in my personal notes here that you will get sent to you about exactly where those are, but there's just really something to pay attention to there. The other thing I think I would be working on is the technical elements. So we start off, again, this is all on the first page, we start off with explaining how we use AutoCAD. And AutoCAD is something that designers use and architects use, it's very technical, and engineers use very technical software. And we're doing a lot of technical speak here throughout whenever we're talking about the architecture. And it just creates a bit of a barrier between the writing and the reader and the character and the reader when really I think just being in scene a bit more when when we move in, I would just move into that meeting faster. I think that would help. But also the way that the the people in the office are talking about architecture, we're just 
I think the intersection, as I mentioned, between the music and the art and architecture, we have so many references that I just felt so taken out of the moment because unless you get every single reference, like is the reader going to have to run to Wikipedia to kind of look up some of these references? Some of them we're going to know, some of them we won't. And some of them you kind of over-explained, like the, the Stevie Nicks stuff. You were getting at a really specific point about Stevie Nicks that you wanted to make. And so you spent a whole paragraph kind of like breaking down how to get to that point. Like you're kind of explaining your own jokes. <laughs> and in literary fiction, we kind of want to make sure that the reader gets the joke right away. Not that it's a joke, but you know what I mean? Like that that the reader gets exactly what we're what you're trying to express right away without having to explain yourself, right? It's like kind of like a magician doing their trick and then like and then afterwards explaining how you did the trick, you know, to be like, look how smart I am. I believe that we can get there. And I I think literary fiction requires a lot of confidence in your own writing and a lot of confidence in your reader that they are going to understand exactly what you're getting at. However, I just think we have a, too many too many references between all of these different art forms to really have the reader feel connected to this actual moment. And being in scene is really is so important. I know CC talks a lot about being in scene. And I think this would benefit from really focusing on why does the reader have to be in this scene? Not just what you're trying to show us as you know the creator of this world, but really like how are you going to engage this reader and, and get them turning the pages from a from a plot point of view? So leaning into your scene here from a reader's perspective. I think would really help. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Remember, for our Kofi supporters, those of you who support us monthly, you will get to see Carly and Cece's detailed notes on all four queries that we're looking at today. And for those of you who support us monthly, you'll get to see two of them. All right, Cece, let's go to your query. Will you read that for us? Dear Cece Lira, I am writing to you because I heard you on the podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, express an interest in feminist family dramas and stories involving intersectionality. I am seeking representation for American Exodus, a completed work of women's fiction, 81,000 words. Like the televised miniseries, The Plot Against America, based on Philip Roth's novel, the story shows a slowly declining democracy driving a family apart, but with the contemporary feminist feel of The Husbands by Chandler Baker. The story is told from the perspective of a middle-aged mother of three, with a few chapters written from the point of view of her family. Dr. Susan Levin lives according to social convention. When a populist government advocates replacement theory and shudders kosher butchers, it's scary and unfair, but what can she do? She is busy. She must publish to be promoted. Her eldest is getting married. And the high school is threatening to expel her youngest again. Soon, ethnic quotas result in her son's expulsion from university, and the administration removes ethnic minorities from the voting rolls. As civil society unravels, so do family relations. Her new son-in-law works for the administration, while her youngest gets in trouble with the law fighting it. With her husband in a paralyzing depression and the Canadian border closed to refugees, she follows her sister-in-law to Israel leaving her eldest behind. Once in Jerusalem, her husband and son fit in, but Sue and her daughter struggle with the edicts of a newly elected patriarchal government. Now there is no place to go. If Sue is to find the sense of belonging she craves, she must give up her conformist tendencies and fight to create the world she wants to live in. I have written two nonfiction books, one of which is Woman for President, second edition, University of Illinois Press. A former reporter and university 
writing instructor. Today, I run exchange programs that give me an international perspective on families and threats to democracy. This is my debut novel. I appreciate your time in considering my query. Best, Erica Falk. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Wow, that sounds really intriguing as well. What was your take on that? I absolutely agree. This is a super intriguing query letter. The comps did exactly what comps are supposed to do for the emotional purposes, which is tell me, oh my God, I know what the story is, right? When you say plot against America meets the husbands, I get it. Like I get what the story is supposed to feel like. I get what I'm going into. If I'm in the mood for that kind of story, I'm going to immediately dive in. So it sounds really incredible. I also want to say that I can tell just by how well structured this query letter is that the writer spent a lot of time working on it. And I so appreciate it. It's very, very polished and you should be very proud. I do think it needs work specifically in the plot paragraph. There's a lot of plot points, which would actually be fine because I didn't even notice it the first time I read it. I was just so intrigued by the story. So you can keep the plot points if you want, or you can compress to be a little bit more conservative in your approach in case an agent does mind a, a little bit of a lengthier plot paragraph. But the one thing that I do think needs work is the last line. If Sue is to find the sense of belonging she craves, she must give up her conformist tendencies and fight to create the world she wants to live in. This is like great job with the setup, inciting incident, plot points, but the climax is reading a little vague and too interior for such a plot-driven novel, right? I would prefer to reach this point with a very clear major dramatic question that is specific to the protagonist's plot journey. So find the sense of belonging, that's too interior. Also not what's going on. You've described to me a situation in which it's not just about a sense of belonging, although that's very important. There are exterior things going on, right? So I would just reframe that last line. Does she join the resistance? As she joins the resistance, does she find herself with conflicting loyalties? Like, I don't know what happens. It's your book. But whatever happens, this last line cannot be this interior if this is to be such a plot-driven novel. I also really liked the author paragraph. So great job with that. And thank you for sharing. Great, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? And did they do the heavy lifting? So we are in Dr. Sue Levin's point of view. The query letter made that clear that it's told through her point of view with a few chapters on her family as well. And, you know, she's with her husband, her daughter, and her daughter's fiance. They are leaving the inaugural ball. They're going to a bonfire. The bonfire is essentially, there's the Clark president anthem playing in the background. Everyone is so happy about the first woman president. The protagonist was involved in the campaign. Her husband was, her son-in-law apparently too. It's it's one of those situations where they're all happy. They're, they're, they're toasting. And then a book is burned. And then on the middle of the speech, an anti-Semitic comment is, is mentioned. And her husband goes pale. Her husband removes everyone from there. They just say, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And they're in the car and talking about how they're really surprised about this anti-Semitic comment and how this could be indicative of something worse. So that's what happens. And what did you think about it? Okay, so... Like I said, the concept here, very strong. I do think the execution needs a little bit of work. I want to start off by saying something that's working really well. There are some really great sharp visuals here. So for example, her daughter's round, soft baby cheeks still pad her face. 
obscuring her hard ambition. That's a wonderful sharp visual. Excellent job there. There are so many others here. I do think that the interiority is what's not working because you're promising me that I'm going to be in her point of view. And yet, for example, when the anti-Semitic, super scary comment is said, the first thing we see is Dan goes pale. Her first reaction, her body, the fear in her body should be the first thing she clocks. Not Dan goes pale. Dan goes pale comes second. And then we do get her interiority after Dan going pale. So the order is wrong, but it's not just a matter of what order is or isn't right, according to my opinion. It's also things like there's borderline head hopping going on. There are moments where she narrates what someone else is doing with their intention. There's no way she could know that, even if she strongly believes the phrasing needs to be a little bit different. And also, there's not enough fear and even surprise, honestly. Surprise, I think, should come first. She works for this candidate. She had no idea this person was anti-Semitic. So where's the surprise? Where's the confusion? Where's the, wait, what? There has to be a little bit of that. And I also think one of the functions of interiority is time travel. If you're at a rally and someone says an anti-Semitic comment, someone you trusted, your, your brain is automatically going to go, wait, so that day, last July, when he said that, is that what he meant? Or, but wait a second, how could he think that? Because last July, he said something pro-Israel, right? That's what your brain does. And a few lines on that would make her interiority so much more believable. As well, I another interiority note, I wanted to see how she observed her daughter and her fiance, because her daughter is very much saying, no, they're not being anti-Semitic. You know, it's okay to be against Israel's policies. That doesn't make you anti-Semitic. And the parents are disagreeing, or mostly the husband, but also the protagonist. But I wanted to get more insight because moms don't just listen to their daughters disagree with them and and think, oh, well, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to cause a fight. Moms theorize. They go, She's saying this because she wants to impress her fiance, or she's saying this because she went to that liberal school. I should never have put her in that liberal school, or she's saying this because of whatever, whatever the reason. Again, you will connect things. That's what our brain does. And I wanted more of that. So, you know, big picture notes, ground this in Sue's interiority, remove the borderline head hopping. I did flag that for you. Make sure that you're talking about her thoughts and feelings first in a way that's very specific, not generic. And as a second minor note, the dialogue is a little forced right now. It's a little unnatural. It's being used to impart information. And naturally, all authors use dialogue to impart information, but the reader is not supposed to feel like it. To use Carly's great analogy, it's supposed to be like a magic trick, right? I'm supposed to see the magic trick and be mesmerized. I'm not supposed to see what's happening behind the scenes. So yeah, those are my notes. Great, Cece. Thank you. All right, Carly, let's go to your second query letter. Will you read that for us? Dear Ms. Murray, Ms. Lyra, and Ms. Waters, an avid listener of The Shit Podcast, I hope my book is acceptable, my hook lures you, and my cook leaves you scanning for the pages. I'm seeking representation for my dual point of view 82,000 word contemporary drama, Eyes Watching, is best described as Nicholas Sparks' safe haven meets the Loch Ness Monster. Technology and folklore clash, fueling a mind game. Lacey's adult existence has mirrored a bad soap opera. Married young and now divorced, she is compelled to rebuild a life for her and her dog. She must rediscover her strong, independent, confident self. It's time to pull on her big girl pants and move out of her best friend's home, but that won't be easy when the feeling of being watched slithers through her veins, keeping her paranoid. Just when life swung in a positive direction and Kent enters her life, disaster erupted. Lacey's future happiness was ripped from her grasp. 
Young and impressionable, Wesley believed he was stuck in a marriage rut and craved the social scene. Now in his mid-50s, he's terrified of being alone during his senior years. Thanks to the tracker he installed in Lacey's car, he knew she did not have a social life. He assumed she would crawl back to him, but his hopes to reconcile faded as he watched her entertain another guy. When Lacey refuses his invitation for date night, his temper flared. Ignoring the rumors about a mythological creature that existed within depths, Wesley dismissed the golden rule, certain it was folklore meant to attract tourists. He ventured into a perilous territory, putting lives at risk. I have worked with editors and I spend time watching Reedsy videos, attempting to hone my craft. Another contemporary drama is in the final stages of editing. An animal lover, our 15-year-old dog loves her daily nature walks, unless she isn't in the mood. She plants her paws firmly on the ground, turns her head, and gives us that rebellious eye. She's the boss and she knows it. No animals were harmed while drafting this plot. I'd be thrilled to send my complete manuscript upon request. Thank you for your time and consideration. Heath. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, what was your take on that? All right. So I feel like the Nicholas Sparks safe haven comp works here. I do think that works. However, the Loch Ness monster bit, that confused me quite a bit, I will say. I don't know if it was meant to make me think more like Scotland or more like actual Loch Ness monster, but I also don't know exactly where we are physically, whether we are supposed to be thinking there is a Loch Ness monster type of situation nearby. So I had a lot of questions about that. And then there was a log line saying technology and folklore clash fueling a mind game. But I just wasn't sure how fantastical we were supposed to be because it's pitched as a contemporary drama, right? And so, yeah, I just had a lot of questions about the positioning and exactly who it was for. But I would lean more into the safe haven comp. I think that's more accurate. And I would cut that log line. And now I just definitely think we need to do some condensing. There's some lines here where essentially we're saying the same thing, right? She rebuilds, wants to rebuild a life for her and her dog, must discover her strong self, put on her big girl pants. Like all of those are really saying the exact same thing. So I would just, again, either cut most of it or just find a way to condense condense this as much as possible. I like the little line about slithers through her veins, keeping her paranoid, that feeling of being watched. I think that's good. But I'm also kind of curious to know if this is suspense or thriller or mystery. Like we have contemporary drama, but the word drama is doing a lot of heavy lifting here. Like what kind of drama are we talking about? Sometimes when I hear contemporary drama, I think one of those novels about like family drama, right? It's like everybody's, there's a family secret type of drama, right? But this is like, drama like danger drama and i think i just want to have a sense of like how dangerous this is because safe haven does have a very dangerous ending so again that's why i think this is a good comp but i almost feel like again that positioning contemporary drama isn't as accurate as i as i want it to be so the next question is who is kent (laughs) at first i was like is kent the ex who is Kent? Is Kent's the new guy? You kind of have to explain, you know, her new boyfriend. And if he does need to be named, fine, call him the new boyfriend. But if he doesn't need to be named, maybe just say, like, she got a new boyfriend. And then this bit about her future happiness was ripped from her grasp. I'm like, mm, okay, just a little bit vague. Like, we kind of spent that whole paragraph normalizing that she has to rebuild her life. It just it just felt like like too much. Okay, so next... I struggled a little bit with his POV, Wesley here. So this is really, really tough if we are going to spend half the novel in his POV, which I kind of get the sense because you pitched it as a dual POV. Is the reader going to really want to read this dark side? Essentially, you know, if this novel is 82,000 words and it's a dual POV, we're spending approximately 40,000 words with this character. If he is a manipulative asshole, like I just don't know how on earth 
we are going to convince readers that they need to spend time with him. Like, does he have any redeeming qualities? You'll get a bit more listeners. You're going to get a little bit more once we get into these pages. But my questions at this stage are, is he redeeming at all? There's a novel called All Things Cease to Appear. It's one of my favorite literary thrillers. Absolutely obsessed with it. And it has a huge POV in this kind of manipulative male POV, but it's a literary thriller, right? And this is contemporary drama, a bit more commercial. So I just don't, I'm just not convinced a commercial audience is going to want to spend this much time with an asshole. I don't know. (laughs) I'd love to be proven wrong. I'm just not fully convinced. And then we get into our bio paragraph. I will say just from like a technical point of view, the line that says an animal lover, our 15 year old dog loves her daily nature walks. It sounds like the dog is an animal lover, like, cause there's no mention of an, of a human in that line. So it's kind of just sounds like your 15 year old dog also loves other animals. So I don't know. I would reword that a bit. And I know CC loves being extra about dogs, but I feel like we're just a little bit, a little bit extra about dogs in this one. So I would take it or leave it on that last bit about the dogs. <laughs> I think that was definitely for CC's sake and probably they wouldn't do that for other agents. Something interesting, and I've had this discussion with people in students in my classes when we talk about, yeah, but look at Joe from Caroline Kepnes's You. He's a sociopath, he's a psychopath, he's a murderer, etc. But he was a damn charming murderer. We were sucked into how much we kind of liked him and how much he made sense in terms of his social commentary. He hated the same kind of people most people hate and hates of pretension, et cetera, et cetera. And so we got on board with him and it was only like later that we found out, okay, this guy's a complete psychopath. And then we still liked spending time with him. So there's a fine line between a charming psychopath whose head we like being in and someone who's just an asshole. And we're just like, I don't like this person. There's that whole angel of death thing, right? There's like a whole genre, right? Where it's like you're killing in the name of good kind of, which I think we thought maybe Joe was like that at the beginning, which is why we were slightly endeared to him. But yeah, I I think that's so, I mean, that's one example of hundreds or thousands of manuscripts, right? Like there is a reason you was a best-selling book and and a TV show, right? Yeah, because she did it so damn well. Okay. So what was in those opening pages, Carly? All right. So we start with a prologue and we meet Wesley. And so we are with him in a parking lot. He is observing a building. We know that he is watching his ex-wife at work. It's all kind of a setting thing where we're like getting the creepy vibe. He's kind of like staking out. He's looking at his watch. He finds her car and we get the sense that he is planting this tracking device. And so he breaks into the car. It happens to be unlocked, breaks into the car and spends a bit of time being kind of like technically kind of taking apart some of the dashboard to kind of set up this tracking device. And so we learn a little bit of his interiority, but mostly we're kind of getting this job done and that's it. Okay. And what was your take on them? So I really loved the writing in terms of the setting. I thought this was so well written. We really know where we are. You know, there's a lot of little examples just about exactly what the building looked like, how many stories it was, like how tall it was, what the trees were like, what he was wearing. But it wasn't in an overwritten way. It was just like such a perceptive way of writing that I really, really liked it. I just thought the setting work was really, really well done. A small note here, you had he touched the rim of his Toronto Blue Jays baseball cap and you put the little like R for registered beside Toronto Blue Jays. You don't need to do that. It's totally fine. Take that out. We don't we don't need that. It's just a teeny bit distracting. And another thing in that same sentence you said and adjusted his designer sunglasses. If somebody knew exactly what type of baseball cap they were wearing 
and they didn't know exactly what type of designer sunglasses they were wearing, that was a bit of a red flag to me. Like if this guy is so like kind of pretentious, just thinks he's just the king of the situation, a manipulative guy who's like paying attention to what he's wearing, there's no way he wouldn't be saying like my Tom Ford sunglasses. You know what I mean? So I just thought that was another opportunity just to lean into that a little bit more. I thought the fact that the car was open was a little bit too easy. Even if it's like he tries one door and the one door is locked and then he goes to the second door and that door is open, just like ratcheting up that tension just a little bit, I think would be great. Just a little bit too easy that he was able to kind of get in there. I made a note about something that I thought was like very creepy, but very good. He said, the weight of her engagement ring and wedding band pulled from the gold chain beneath his work shirt. So like he had her old like rings on around his neck from his ex-wife, right? I thought that was like, oh, that's creepy. That's a good little character insight. But yeah, I think I have just have a lot of questions about this book as a whole, as I said, about how much time we're spending with Wesley, especially since we opened the novel with Wesley. I don't know. There's a lot to be discovered, I think, in general about this concept, I think, and its saleability in my personal opinion. But on a line level, as I said, the setting writing here was so, so good. Amazing, Carly. Thank you. And I'm always saying that if the writing's there on the line level, other things can easily be changed. They can easily be adjusted. But if the writing isn't there on a line level, then you're going to be struggling. So that's great feedback. Okay, we are now moving on to the last query letter. Cece, will you read that for us? Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I started listening to the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast in the beginning stages of this story two years ago. Your podcast has been the steady drumbeat in the background over this time, and I'm very grateful for the lessons and laughs. I'm excited to share the submission with Cece because of her interest in family stories, which runs through the heart of this novel. Exposure Therapy is a contemporary romance complete at 80,000 words. This novel is for fans of plus-sized heroines and unconventional heroes and combines the lifestyle reporting world from How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days with the second chance travels of people we meet on vacation to follow two ex-somethings writing a story about a road trip. Norma Mitchell is a clickbait copywriter who desperately wants to be the real writer her late mother believed her to be. When she accidentally submits a personal letter from her therapy session instead of her latest pitch, she gets the opportunity she's been waiting for and winds up face-to-face with a situationship that leaves her burned. Oliver Nader, a burnt-out lawyer, has spent the last decade bending under the weight of his family's expectation. Now he's getting a fresh start doing one thing he never let himself pursue, photography. When Noma's pitch upends his plan to secure his new job, he'll do whatever it takes to avoid going back to late nights and complicated briefs. Between hikes horseback rides, and an opportunity for second chances on themselves and each other, Noma and Oliver make their way across the country in pursuit of a story that could change their lives. Before long, both find that the closer they get to finishing their trip, the less either of them wants it to end. In my 9 to 5, I'm a digital strategist working towards gender and racial equity, with a focus on reaching young women voters via the internet. In my early morning and evening hours, I strive to write happy endings and love stories for characters, which the world sometimes compels to live in in the margins. Thank you for your consideration, Tessa. Okay, thanks, Cece. What did you think of that? Okay, I really, really like 
what I think you're going for based on my interpretation. Because when I read How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, I thought, oh, it's one of those romance comedy things where someone is trying to achieve one goal and then in the journey to achieving that goal, finds out that they want something else and it's going to be sweet and heartwarming. And I, I love those concepts, right? I think they're so much fun. But you did write the lifestyle reporting world from How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. And I'm thinking, wait, is the lifestyle reporting world the only thing about this comp that's going to work? Because if it is, I would just find a more recent comp with lifestyle reporting. It, I mean, there's so many. I just don't. Because How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days tells me something else. It gives me that mood. And I, I really like that idea if, if that's what you're going for. I also really like the inciting incident when she accidentally submits a personal letter from her therapy session instead of her latest pitch. That is so great. Made me think of that that shopaholic inciting incident that I watched in the movie a million years ago, but it was so funny and just, just working really well. I do think, however, that the last line of the plot paragraph, before long, both find that the closer they get to finishing the trip, the less either of them wanted to end. This, for my taste, tells me that it's really sweet and so wholesome and adorable, but not as climactic as I need it to be. It's not even a major dramatic question, right? Because it almost feels like a sweet ending. I think that in a rom-com, the will they or won't they is definitely part of the driving force, but we also need something else. We need something at stake. Now, that being said, take this with a grain of salt. I love rom-coms that have that climactic feel. I am not a fan of the nothing happens in rom-com situation. Like I just, I think they're boring. So if your book is more like it's going to be sweet and wholesome and, and adorable, and it's not going to be the thing with the huge stakes, then then don't listen to me. But if you were going for something more like, no, no, I want more things to be at stake. I want it to be that more meaty sort of rom-com. Then I think that line needs to be tweaked to really flesh out the major dramatic question and not at all their interiority or their love for each other, because that's just understood. Could you give us an example there, Cece, of the major dramatic question that it could be and how you might incorporate that? Because I'm, I'm thinking a, a practical example here would be really helpful for the rest of our listeners. Yeah, so a really good example is Beach Read. Not only do we have the will they or won't they, but we have her going through her discovery of her father's longtime affair, which is way more complicated than it seems, and the fact that she has to deliver a book. And so they create a competition where she will write his book and he will write her book. And so that makes their um, will they or won't they complicated on many levels. She's working through her stuff with her own family. She's working through her career moments. He's working through his career moments. There's a neighbor element. So I think that that, to me, would make more sense here. So I don't know what the major dramatic question would obviously be for your story because I don't know enough about it. But anything that lies at the intersection of conflict between love and trust works. All good stories, all literally all of them under the sun. There is no exception to this. They exist at the intersection of conflicts between love and trust. So wherever your conflict lies, I would just flesh that out. Amazing, Cece. Thank you. I feel like we have another saying that's about to go onto a mug. Okay, so will you give us an understanding of what's in those opening pages? So we start with a very, very brief text exchange that happened four months ago via what I'm assuming is a dating app between Noma and Oliver. It's quirky and it's very short. And then we get to Noma's point of view, interiority. She's thinking to herself that you only need to try something once to know if it's going to work. And anyone who keeps trying something over and over again and expecting different results, they're, well, they are the definition of insanity. 
And because of this truth, this universal truth, as she perceives it, she knows she is not meant to write clickbait because it's like the 2000th time she's done this, probably more than that. Then she logs off from work and gets a call from her best friend. Um, and her best friend's like, where are you? You're running late. If you run late, you're going to have to buy me lunch. And she says, well, no, I'm going to be there right on time. We understand that she needs to clock in to her work as a barista. So she goes to the cafe. and. At the cafe, we get a little bit of description of what it looks like and her relationship with her best friend who also works there. And she gets a notification on her phone. It was a reminder for submissions. And it's submissions for something that she really wants, um, the Lifestyle Magazine. So she very quickly writes up an email. We see her writing the email. We see her attaching a file. And she submits. So that's what happens. Wonderful. Thank you. What did you think about that? So I want to say that the text messages in the beginning working so well. It's short, it's quirky, it's not info dumpy, it's just excellent. Please keep that. The interiority in the beginning, I would not keep. First of all, I don't agree. The whole, you only need to try something once to see if it works. Neuroscience doesn't agree with that. So maybe she's meant to be incorrect about this. Maybe this is her character's path. And at the end, she'll be like, oh, no, I realize that that's not how things work. But even if that's the case, I wouldn't start with it. It's just too interior. And I wanted to see her, I think, having a goal, a clear goal in a scene, because there's absolutely no goal that she has throughout these five pages. So I wouldn't start with that. I think you're starting at the wrong place. Even the call with her best friend, it's so polished and so well-written. So like, brava in terms of the writing. But like, there's no, there's no purpose to her actions other than establishing things. We've established that she works at a nine to five sort of job in copywriting and like clickbait writing. We've established that she has another job as a barista. We've established that she has a best friend. And to be super clear, we've established this really well. Good job. But again, I don't want just establishing. I want to see her like interact with people. So maybe like a scene where she is dealing with a difficult boss, because I know she has a difficult boss based on a reference. But that's just my take, right? Like, so I do think it's starting in the incorrect place, just in terms of tweaking. I really think it's just about adding a goal. I really like how sure of herself she is. There was an echo that I highlighted. Life-changing, worth every penny. That's dialogue. And then interiority. It was a lot of pennies. That echo is working so well. There were so many things that I liked, like these, the symbolism with like the half, the, the glasses half full that she leaves lying about. I really like how the inciting incident was framed. It was very believable, so tight, polished scene. So you do have something that's really strong here. So yeah, big picture notes. Don't start with interiority in the beginning. Give her a goal. While the writing is strong, I'm not rooting for her. And I suspect that that's because of the goal. I think rethink the setup. And then as a final note, and I don't mean to take over, but I personally felt that you're missing an opportunity to comment on the millennial gig economy. The fact that she essentially has two jobs. She has to work as a barista and she has to work as a clickbait writer, her words. This is super common, right? Like this is the world we live in. And I just felt like some interiority with a sense of emotion about how she feels about that um, would be so great. And some contrast perhaps with the with her best friend, right? Like maybe her best friend feels the opposite way because contrast is super important to flesh out story. So I would... Again, if this fits your character, if this is something that you would like to do, this is by no means something that I am saying you sh you must, right? It's just like, I read this and I was like, oh, opportunity for social commentary here. Like one line, one zingy line about that. I would really, really like that. And I think that agents and acquisitions editors would really like that too. 
because your writing is strong. So, so you, you have something here that could be really special, I think. Thanks so much, Cece. Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of agents and editors out there who are also millennials, right, who are coming up through the ranks and who are going to connect with that kind of social commentary. I think that's a great suggestion. And also for our listeners, remember that when it comes to setup, the challenge there is to include that in the action of the story. If you're able to give the reader some understanding of what the context is and what this world kind of looks like while things are actually happening and moving the plot forward, then you've you've really nailed it. So try as much as possible to integrate those two aspects of storytelling. Now we go to today's guest. Are you writing a memoir with a goal of publishing? If so, I can help. I'm Jessica, a memoir mentor and developmental editor who helps women turn their experiences into stories other people want to read. Right now, I'm giving away a 30-page manuscript evaluation and a one-hour coaching call designed to help you take the next steps in bringing your book to the world. To win, go to theshitaboutwriting.com and enter on the giveaway page. You can also connect with me directly at jessicajhill.com or on Instagram at jessicaj.hill. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone 
for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matcha page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi everyone, it's Carly here. I want to tell you about my next webinar that I have coming up. It's called Being an Author on the Internet. Best Practices, Learning the Difference Between Brand and Platform, and How to Build Your Literary Community. I'm really excited for this upcoming event. It's on October 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern. You can head over to my website, carlywaters.com, to learn everything about it. It's called Being an Author on the Internet. We'll spend 90 minutes at 8 p.m. on October 12th going over everything you need to know about best practices, building your literary community, and I can't wait to share all of my best tips and tricks. See you there. Today's guest is an author, producer, and television presenter. Both his first novel, The Thursday Murder Club, and his second, The Man Who Died Twice, were number one million copy international bestsellers, as well as New York Times bestsellers. He lives in London with his partner and Liesl the cat. It's my pleasure to welcome Richard Osman. Richard, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Bianca. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm afraid Liesl is not with us today. Normally, normally if I'm on Zoom, she's, uh, she wants a piece of it, but uh, she's not with us today. My cat Wombat's lying behind me, so she might wrap herself around me at any minute. So uh, maybe maybe that'll lure Liesl out. <laughs> suddenly the two of them having a standoff. <laughs> Bit of hissing happening here. Okay, yeah. so there is so much to unpack. So for our listeners, in a peaceful retirement village, four unlikely friends, Joyce, Elizabeth, Ibrahim, and Ron, meet weekly in the Jigsaw Room to discuss unsolved crimes. And together they call themselves the Thursday Murder Club. Now, I've been a huge fan of the series since the book first came out, so I'm really excited to chat Aww. to Richard today. So, Richard, before we dive into craft elements, you know, this book has really tapped into something in terms of a diverse readership. People love this book. They love the series. They love these characters. Can you tell us what you think it is that's appealed to so many readers? Gosh, it's a very good question. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because uh, if, if, if we could work it out, we would, we would do it every book. I think it's four heroes in their 70s, you know, which already makes them feel like underdogs and that people in their 70s are probably overlooked in our in our culture. You know, I think we're, we're, we're very used to kind of seeing 25-year-old Instagrammers everywhere. So it's quite nice to have heroes who are a little bit older. I think that crime fiction has a very seductive narrative, which is, here's a problem, but I promise there's a solution at the end of it. And I think, given you know that's the journey you're on, I think that if you have characters people love, 
then they will stay with you. That's the uh, that's the idea. Is we know, we know where we're headed. We're headed to unmasking somebody or something, to you know unraveling a mystery. But to spend time in people's company on the way, I think is the thing. I think that's the thing that brings warmth. And I think that's the thing that brings that sort of you know people come up to you in the street all the time to talk about the book and they're always smiling. You know, and that's such a that's that's such a lovely thing. And that comes to that doesn't come from plot. You know that you know plot is there to keep people you know amused, but it comes from character, I think. So going to that, when you first sat down and you came up with this premise, what came to you first? Did you go, oh, four septuagenarians in a retirement village solving crimes? Is it that one of the characters came to you first? And how did you come up with this kind of ensemble cast? Because you give us each a bit for everyone. You know, Ibrahim is so cerebral. He's really a gentleman. He's really dignified. He's got mm. his weird little quirks as they all do, but then Ron is really rough around the edges, etc. So so how did you come up with, with each of them? It's a good question. And as always, I, you know, when people talk about creativity, creativity to me or how, how I experience it or ideas, where, where do they come from? I sort of feel at any given time I've got a series of bubbles just going around my head. Something I just saw on TV, someone I just visited, just a little line of something that somebody once said, you know, a problem about the world that needs solving. Those are little bubbles and occasionally two of them bang into each other and form a bigger bubble. And and for this one, my mum lives in a retirement community. So she lives in this community that where everyone's over 70 and they, they did fascinating things with their life. And every time I'd go down there, I was thinking, wow, there's some interesting people here. Now, at the moment, that's not an idea. That's a bubble. I not even thinking about it. I know it's there. And then once when I was down there, and it's a, it's a really beautiful place. You know, it's very, very peaceful. And you can hear the bird song and there's, you know, lakes and all sorts of things. Uh, and once I was down there, I sort of, I, I kind of went, this would be, as an Agatha Christie fan, I thought this would be an amazing place for a murder. And then suddenly those two, I've got these two things going around my head. This would be an amazing place for a murder. And aren't there a load of incredible people here? And they hit together and I thought, there we go. There is. We'll have a murder here. And this will be the group of people who solve it. So that's where the initial thought was. Then I get the title because there's notice boards there about Tuesday Art History Club and Wednesday Knitting Club. And literally the, the phrase Thursday Murder Club came into my head. And I just, I just sort of, I just thought, yeah, that's, that, I can, I, that makes sense to me. I can live with that. And the four characters, honestly, I, I want to say that, that I went through a process. And I, but, but I didn't. I mean, I wanted two women. I wanted two men. I wanted two working class characters. I wanted two middle class characters just because I want there to be unlikely friendships. And, you know, I want there to be, I want each of them to have a different bond to the other. And, you know, and I love things like the A-team. So there's always going to be four of them. And honestly, they're, they're just the four quadrants of my own head is the truth. And so each of them sort of sprang fairly fully formed. You know, and I tend to, if I'm developing a character, I don't sit down and do a sketch of them. I just write a scene and see what they say. And occasionally there'll be a line of dialogue where you go, that's interesting what sort of person would ever say that and that tends to be where my characters come from they come from lines of dialogue and then I go right I want to find out the person who would say that and you know that that I think is how I built all four of them I love that that's exactly how I approach character as well because I find those sketches you know that's yeah. how you come up with flat characters who can answer I a questionnaire so. right but they can't move through yeah. the world fully 
formed and, and we are going to discuss that shortly but I was just marveling at you know you're a writer when you go somewhere lovely and idyllic and there's lakes and you go wouldn't it be cool if there's a murder here you yeah. know <laughs> yeah you, you know you know a you're a writer and b you're British those are those are the two things you know there yeah yeah okay so let's look at the structure of all the novels so you write from third person close from alternating viewpoints, we mostly have the men, members of the club, but you also write from the cops' perspectives, you write from the criminals, sort of the baddies, so-called baddies' yeah. perspectives. Yet one person's perspective is told in the first person in the form of what appears to be diary entries. So yeah. what made you choose this kind of POV structure? It chose itself is the truth. I think that the big problem I had when I started writing, and I think it's a big problem for most people, is who on earth do I think I am? right? What, what right do I have to be telling a story? Right? What's my authorial voice? Uh, and I, very specifically, what right do I have to, to describe flowers and trees and the sky and stuff like that? You know, what's, I mean, that's it, not my business. And the second I put it in someone else's voice, and the second I knew I had somebody who was writing something for herself, but, but who might also be trying to describe flowers and trees and sky and not be very good at it, or not feel it was her place to do it. As soon as I had that, I had a sort of surrogate. And so, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't my authorial voice suddenly. It's Joyce, who's the character who does the, um, the diaries. And once I'd written a few of those chapters, I felt the chapters in between, which were written by an author, but as you say, always from the perspective of one of the characters, I sort of felt she'd eased me into it. I sort of felt, well, if Joyce is doing it, then I'll have a go at doing it as well. But I, I think it was fooling myself into writing some chapters. But I don't know how you get over that thing of saying, how, what business is it of mine to be writing a book? You know, that's such a big hurdle that people don't talk about. You know, just you feel like a fool, right? You feel like there's so many brilliant writers who can describe what the sky looks like. You know, it doesn't feel like it's my place to do that. Yeah, we say on this podcast, there is no place for imposter syndrome when you put your bum in the chair and you want to write. Because yeah. as you know, a book goes out into the world, everyone can critique it, whether they're professional reviewers or not. And mm. so everyone has so much to say about whether you should be writing, how well you write, etc. So there's no place for you to be one of those, you know, people who are critiquing yourself. So we say get rid of the damn imposter syndrome and just give yourself permission. Yeah, it's true. And I, you know, I, I, I was, you know, Joyce gave me that permission is the truth. You know, I just needed something. I need something to say, no, you're, you're allowed to do this. You know, sometimes it's just a chapter that, you know, you just kind of go, oh, actually, I don't think anyone else would have written that chapter, you know, because that other voice, which is, well, this doesn't, this doesn't sound like any book I've read before, right? Which at first can be a critical voice. You just go, well, this isn't, books aren't like this. You know, this isn't what books, you know, I buy books, I read books, and this isn't like a book. And the moment you can turn that from, oh, so I'm a bad writer into, oh, then actually maybe I've got something to say. I may, maybe I've got a voice that, 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 you know, isn't out there. That's an important moment as well. And it's a hard one. And, you know, you have to, as you know, you've got to keep the faith all the way through this process. You've got to constantly be kidding yourself and constantly sort of suspending your disbelief until it's done and then when it's done then listen that's that, that's a different process but but the act of writing a first draft is 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 the act of permanently just keeping out of your own way and never looking in the mirror i think 
that whole fake it till you make it. You know, if you tell yourself you're a writer and you keep telling yourself that and act like a writer and pretend you're a writer, you'll become a writer, which yeah. is... And do the work is the only thing. And the voice has one job, which is to say you don't have to do the work today. You know, that's that, that's all that voice. And just whatever form the voice takes, whatever fraudulency it's accusing you of, you know, it will it will take on a, many different forms to stop you from sitting down and writing, and just just recognise it's the same voice every time. It's just it's just trying different tactics, and your job is yeah, it's just to sit there and you know press the keys one after another until you got ninety thousand words or, or whatever you need. Uh, and in in terms of Joyce, I thought it was an interesting choice that you had her be the one who is keeping these diary entries. And from what you've just said, I think it's you chose her because she's probably the least eloquent besides Ron. I mean, you just know Ron is not going to keep a diary for God's sake, you know, yes. but of the other three, I think Elizabeth and Ibrahim would be quite eloquent in terms of expressing their thoughts. I also think Elizabeth wouldn't have the patience to sit down and write this stuff, but as well, what made me giggle so many times is there are times that Elizabeth is doing all kinds of things to cover up what they've just done to make sure nobody bloody knows about it. And yet Joyce is giving all of the yeah, details yeah. in her journal so that if someone yeah. It, they'd be in big shit so yeah. you know she does she occasionally hints at that she'll say she'll tell elizabeth she wrote about something in a diary and elizabeth will go what diary anything okay uh yeah and also she she's in the diary because she's not someone who would have written during her life and ibrahim and elizabeth are both people who would have written reports throughout their whole life and i wanted someone who's trying writing for the first time is the truth and someone who's trying to get their thoughts down and ordered for the first time because you know the joy of joyce and the joy of writing her is because she is not, uh, she's not been writing her whole life, she can jump from one thing to another incredibly quickly. You know, she can take you in know, four different directions and, you know, go back to where she started. And if you're writing a mystery, then a character whose voice you're happy to listen to and you're happy to hear and who's entertaining you, but also who can sort of sum up what just happened and what's about to happen and maybe drop in a clue is a very, very, very useful voice to have. But, you know, as you said, none of that works if we're not enjoying reading her. And again, that's all that is, is character, is, 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 is do we like this human being? Yeah, very, very much so. So there's tons of social commentary in your novels, Richard. It's things like ageism, toxic masculinity, mm. sort of the wokeness of the younger generation versus the political incorrectness and honesty yeah. of an older generation and yet the books never feel preachy i think a lot of mm. readers who aren't actually paying attention wouldn't actually even notice that they kind of consuming this kind of social commentary so was that the approach you were going for and what advice do you have for other writers who want to do this but might be doing it in a much more heavy-handed way yeah it's definitely it was a very 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 conscious thing i have a certain view about the world um well, you know what? It's not even a view about the world. But if you are a sociopath, then there is a lot of PR out there for you at the moment. You know, the 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 cause of the sociopath is very present in our world, and you know, the cause of you know benefits of being greedy and the benefits of not worrying about the world. You know, there's plenty out there, and there is not a lot of good PR out there for empaths, right? For people who, who want the world to go in a slightly different direction. So. Yeah, I have a very definitive political stance. I have zero interest in lecturing anybody about it because the second you tell anyone anything about it, they, of course, if they agree with you, great. I mean, they agree with you anyway. If they disagree with you, they've fallen out of love with your character or with your story. You've, you've taken them outside of it, I think. And so, again, it, it comes down to character, which is, I think all of the characters, if they have anything in common, is they are 
very tough empaths. You know, they're empathetic, but also they believe in not messing about and they believe in getting things done. And they're very happy to do a bad thing for a good reason, you know, and that's the sort of world of that book. But you're right. You know, it's it's fascinating. The demographic who reads this book, certainly in the UK, is is sort of universal. It goes across the the political spheres. It goes across the age spheres, you know, um, all of that kind of gender, everything. But the message is the same. But I'm, I'm essentially writing things that if I was writing them in a lecture, I think an awful lot of people would switch off. But because you're telling a story and and of course it's not i don't it's a mystery right it's a it's a it's a crime book and and there's jokes in it and there's lovely characters so it's not like a state of the nation thing but it's very very important to me that we are seen to that friendships can sort of cross so many boundaries and that people who fundamentally disagree with each other about things have got each other's backs uh, and that weirdly, you wouldn't have thought 20 years ago, but that's weirdly a political statement now, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm very, very happy for that to be the political statement of, of, of these books, while at the same time, entertaining people. Yeah. And you know what, besides them being laugh out loud funny, because, you know, I, I'm from South Africa, so I much prefer British humor to American humor. And it's just so wry, it's tongue in cheek. There are moments that you just giggling but besides that there's really incredibly heartfelt and there's tenderness you know tender moments in there like the moments between Elizabeth and her husband so you know it's rare that a writer can write one moment things that are really really funny and the next where you kind of get this this lump in your throat what's what's your advice there for balancing that as well well the the key with humour, I think humour is very, very hard and humour will normally take you outside a story is the truth. But actually, humour doesn't take you outside a story. Jokes take you outside a story. If you do a set-up joke, that you just think, well, that's okay, That I'm not, that doesn't ring true. So I've deliberately tried not to write any jokes at all because I, I know my natural instinct is, is to go for a gag and I, that's not what I want. That's not what I read. That's not what I like. That's not what I enjoy. And so every single bit of humour in the book comes from character it comes from the fact that you've got these four people who are at a stage of their life when perhaps they they fear the consequences of their behavior less than they 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 would otherwise which makes people funny four people who fundamentally disagree about a lot of things which is always funny and four people who find themselves in a situation which is unexpected and unusual and that's always funny as well so the setups are never comic the stories are never comic the characters are never comic but the personalities of the people and how they respond to things are the things that people are laughing at. So I don't think there's any jokes in there. Someone, someone will put me right if I'm wrong, that are set up punchline. You know, the stuff that makes you laugh. I was literally, it's terrible, isn't it? I was reading, I had to read back a scene this morning. And there was a bit, I was really laughing. And it's terrible because I wrote it, but I, I didn't feel like I was laughing at myself. I felt like I was laughing at the character because it wasn't, you know. Uh, so I would say don't write jokes would be my first thing. And the second, if you have characters who are capable of making you laugh, then it's because you understand their vulnerabilities and it's because you understand their perspective. And if you understand those things, then they're also very capable of making you cry as well. And so long as you haven't bought the easy ticket of writing jokes, uh, which takes us out of that character, you know, you can write anything. You can write sadness as well because we, we believe in them. And so yeah, the, the whole thing is you can't think this is my funny character. I think you just have to let people be real. And if you let people be real and you're funny, then your characters will be funny. And if you let people be real and you feel the pain of the world quite keenly, 
then your characters will feel the, world of the, the pain of the world quite keenly. And so I think that's the, that's the secret, is, to, is, is just to let your characters be true as much as you can. Yeah, the, the scene that really made me laugh and also that gave me all the feels was when they're trying to fake bury Victor. Yes. You know, I don't want to give too much away there for, for the listeners, but, you know, the dog is trying to jump in the grave. And while they're doing this, and it's a comedy of errors, the situational comedy was just hilarious. But then in the, the middle of this, Victor looks up out of this grave and, you know, he says something like, there's nothing quite like being buried with a gunshot wound to make you assess your life. And he realizes how lonely he is and how much he would love yeah. to be a part of these people's lives. And it's it's all these laughs and then boom, you're just like, oh, lump in the throat. And speaking of that, it's, it's probably going to be our last question that we have time for is writing fully formed characters. While I love your ensemble cast, I think the characters that I love most in your novels are the criminals. They're the people mm. we didn't expect to like, people like Connie, people like Victor. They're people who've done some terrible things and yet, you know, you you connect with them. So what is your secret to making readers connect with so-called unlikable characters? Again, is it that empathy and, and vulnerability? Yeah, I think it has to be. You know, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've long tried to work out how Patricia Highsmith makes me care about Tom Ripley. Right, you just think like how and I, you know, why why do I root for Tom Ripley when he does these terrible things? Um, if ever I have a new character in there, listen, I I, I want them to. I know that I've got to write some stuff from their perspective, so I want them to be interesting. And to be interesting, you can't just be evil. I mean, occasionally you can have someone like Ian Bentham, who's the villain in the first book. I I just threw all the awful, you know, like friends of mine who go on Tinder dates and tell me about the guys afterwards. I said, right, that's. I'm going to have that guy. That guy's going to be my villain. But of course, then you've got to give him a hinterland. You know, he's got to have other things. And, you know, towards the end of his appearance, you know, you, you also have some empathy towards him. But, yeah, you have to have people. No one is black and white, good and bad. I mean, they're just not, you know. So even if you are like a, a, a sort of former KGB colonel, you have a hinterland. You just do. And you have kindnesses and you have goodnesses um, in you. So... I think you have to treat your villains in the same way that you treat everyone, which is my the, the one trick I always do is, and I've said this before, is if an actor was reading your book because they've just been offered this role, even if it's like a two-scene role or a three-scene role, would they go, oh, yeah, I would love to play that character. There's a lot of fun in that character. And if an actor would look at it and go, um, yeah, okay, it's sort of a lawyer, I suppose, like I've seen before in films, then change the character and make give them something else make them more interesting you know because if an actor reads it and just goes yeah there's something to get into there then you know you've, you've created someone who's 3d i don't think it's that hard you know just give them an angle and then give them a separate angle that sort of you know cuts through that angle and you know think of the friends you like think of friends from school who you genuinely love but also you sort of dislike you know and it's and it's those characters. We've all got people in our lives who just think, listen, I adore you. I will do anything for you. Do I like you? Hmm, probably not. Yeah, Connie's definitely that character. So for our listeners, she's yeah. a crime oh, boss. Crime boss who is tough as nails, boy. But she, again, through the unlikely friendships, her and Ibrahim start chatting and they form this connection. And again, through the unlikely friendships, we're seeing 
you know, so much more of her of her character revealed than yeah. if she was just hanging around, you know, with other criminals, which which is wonderful. Richard, we're at the end of our time. I don't know how that happened. For our listeners, we're going to put all three books up on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Richard, I cannot wait for the next one and hopefully the one after that. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. 
Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.